Lord, we ask, would you um, be present in our midst as we study your written word? Lord Jesus, would you be made manifest to us in all of your glory? We thank you and praise you for all it is that you have, have done for us. And we ask now, give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear how much you love us. So we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So here we are in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Does anybody want to help me remember or help all of us remember what we've been talking about in the last few weeks? Even as you look back at the um, first two chapters of of Acts, what have we seen so far? How did we... Qualities of the church, that's right, Kay. We looked at that last week. I heard another one over there. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Surely healing, that's right, we saw healing at the beginning of chapter 3. So we're going back, we saw, um, in that order, we saw Pentecost. Then um, Luke told us some description of what the early church looked like and what it was like to be a part of the early church, all of these characteristics. Then we saw healing in the temple. Even further back than that, do you remember what happened in chapter 1? Any thoughts? Chapter 1, we kind of get a little bit of an overlap between volume 1. Remember that Acts of the Apostles is volume 2 of 2. Because the first volume, remember what the first volume is? Luke. The Gospel according to St. Luke. Because Luke is writing both books. And in the first book, he is saying, These are, this is who Jesus is and what he has done during his earthly ministry and through his death and resurrection. And then in the second volume, volume two, Luke is wanting to tell us what has Jesus done in our midst as, an, as, a, as a church, as a newborn baby church. And those are, so we call it the Acts of the Apostles, but also these are Jesus' works in the midst of those who believe in him. Signs and wonders are done to bear witness to who he is, to spotlight and highlight who he is and what he's done, and to bring people to a saving faith in him. So it's the Acts of the Apostles, but Volume 2 is also really the work of Jesus Christ as he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he is still reigning on earth. And these are the signs of Jesus's earthly reign from heaven. Remember, he's seated in heaven. Earth is his footstool. He is Lord over all. Remember that that first, um, one of the earliest professions of faith in Jesus Christ and one of the earliest ways of identifying a Christian was if, if a Christian could, if someone could say, Jesus is Lord, then they were saying, I'm a Christian. Because that simplest confession of faith Jesus is Lord suggests that Jesus is above all, that Jesus is to be worshipped even, not just a mere son of man, but also the son of God, the Messiah, and not just the one who died for us, but was also raised from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. So all of that, all of that information is contained within that one phrase, Jesus is Lord. Um, And so what you'll see is that the whole book of Acts is testament to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Even in his bodily absence, he is Lord over all the earth. And we are still in the same age as the early apostles. We are in the age that exists between Jesus' first coming 
and his second coming. And so we talk about signs and wonders and tongues and miracles and things happening in that first century church. Um, but we are, they are our parents in the faith. We are in the same earthly age, the same age of salvation history as they are. As we, like them, um, rejoice over what Jesus has done for us, we celebrate his lordship, we say Jesus is Lord, and then we wait with expectation to watch him transform us into his likeness and to watch him work through us in the environments and the places where he has placed us. So we too, just as he is the light of the world, remember this is why I have these first few verses in there. Jesus says in John's Gospel that he is the light of the world. We hear in the other Gospels too that he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. As we are in Christ, we are lights to those who are in darkness. His light shines through us and it bears witness and testimony to who he is. Um, so that's part of our role in, in this age between Jesus' first coming at his birth and his second coming at the last day. It's been 2,000 years, but we still are in the same age as these first apostles. Any questions about that before we delve specifically into signs and wonders and some of the structure between chapters 2 and 3? Does that make sense? Volume 1, Volume 2. We're still living out Volume 2. Volume 2 is still happening. This is just the beginning. Well, let's look at parallels first. I have on your outline signs and wonders, and we'll do that second. Sometimes I do this. I put things in down on the paper, and then I change the order on you. So sorry about that. But looking at parallels, let's look first at um, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. And one of the things that is very helpful when looking at what's going on in structural parallels like this um, I find it's very helpful to look at the headings in your Bible. You know how your Bible, did you know that the verses and chapters were put in long after, the, um, long after Scripture was written? It was actually written in, I think, in the Reformation. But it was, don't quote me on that, but it was way long after. So sometimes, you know, the, this is the infallible Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God with all authority chapter and verse are not really inspired. They're important. They're inspired by man. They're important and they're helpful for breaking it up. And some of them are better than others. I mean, the chapter and verse are the same from my translation to your translation. But another example of this is the breaking up. Do you have your Bible with little, little headings and things like that? Those are the translators that put in those little headings and put the title of the title of this section of verses is this. The title of this section of verses is this. And that's very helpful. I find it really helpful because I want to know ahead of time, okay, what am I looking at so that I can keep my eyes out for what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the headings are really very helpful. So looking at the headings and the way that the translators have broken up the verses in chapters 2 and 3, does anybody, what, what's the first section that you all have in your Bibles in chapter 2? Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes, and uh, Gordon, what verses? Is it two? First uh, verse. Yeah, the first verse to what? Where does it? Where do they stop it at yours? Uh, one, four. Oh, they go all the way. They go to four. Two two. Okay. Oh, they just do a real quick little one. Two one and two two. That's great. 
Mine says the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it has a bit, little bit of a bigger section because basically what it's doing is it's talking about everything that happened when the Holy Spirit came. You know, well, the Holy Spirit, remember we broke it down. We said they were sitting in the house. The Holy Spirit came like a mighty, mighty rushing wind and sat on their heads like, like tongues of fire. And then tongues came out of their mouth. Different languages came out of their mouth. And they had been in the house, and then suddenly they were out of the house. <laughs> and there was a crowd, and the crowd was saying, what is going on with these people? They're speaking in our language, the language that we've known since birth. So my translation puts it all the way up through 13. Mine does do it through 13, and that's a narration of all of the action. Yes, do, please. Mine goes to Acts 4, verse 31. It's a big section. Why does it do that? Tell us. What well, does it's it? just a verse. The whole, they use the... verse, it, 4.31 says, After the prayer, the building where they were meeting shook. Yeah. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached God's message with boldness. Is it? It has one giant section from two... 1 to 431. Yeah, and that's kind of exciting. We're going to look at why that might be in a minute once we break down what's between 2 1 and 431. Okay, your Bible, what translation is yours again? No, I love it because it gets enough different. I know it's life application. It's good. Many, many years ago. Yeah. It is very good. It's helpful. This is why it's good for us each to use a different translation because we can learn from each other's translations. Okay, so does anybody else have, what does it, so if it starts in 2, does anybody have a different breakdown? 2, 1 to 13 is what I have. That's what you have too. I have the ESV, so if you have the ESV, that's what you'll have. I have the NIV. The NIV and ESV are very often similar. My second, does anybody have a, um, what's your next, if you stop, if your Bible stops at 13 and has another little title like mine, what, what does yours say, Janet? Peter addresses the crowd. Yes, okay, and what verses, when does it have another title? That's 2.14 to the Okay, great. Does anybody else have that, Acts 2? Mine goes 14 through 41 as well, but I've also seen some that break it up and go 2, 14 through 40 before we hear how people respond. Because some people will lump 41 in with 41 the... 41 and 42. You start to hear about those characteristics of the early church that we talked about last... Uh, was that last week? Yeah, that was last week. Anybody else have a different breakdown there? Okay, so does anybody else, when it starts at Acts 42, what title does your, do your translators give um, that section? And where does it end? Ooh, boldness. Boldness of the believers. Anyone else have another title? No, it says Fellowship of Believers. Oh, Fellowship? Um, and it's 2.42 till what? Till the end of the chapter? Till the end of the chapter, right. So to, till 47. Okay, great. 
So then when we start in chapter three, I haven't left myself enough room, sorry, so we're gonna be squished. Mine starts at 3.1, and my section goes till 3.10, which is what we looked at up until the end of the, end of the day last week. What, what, does anybody else have a different one than that? No? Mine doesn't have them. Yours doesn't have them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love having all these different examples because it is really neat, isn't it, to see what someone else's, the translators of someone else's translation have put in as the title headings. So does anybody, ha- so those who have one through 10, what title do your translators give it? The lame beggar healed. That's what mine says as well. Thank you, Lenora. Anybody else? You, you too? Okay. Peter heals the crippled beggar. Okay. So we have this miracle. Okay, then what's your next section? Yeah, I have that as well, that Peter is speaking. Peter addressed the crowd over here. Now Peter's speaking to the onlookers. Yep, he speaks to the crowd. And I'm going to say one, mine says 11 through, I'm going to do 11 through 26. This is what we're looking at this week. Then, um, oh, not three, excuse me. Does anybody, this is looking ahead to next week, looking at chapter four. Does anybody have a title heading for chapter four? And where do they, where do they bring the next break? Mine brings the next break at the, at, before verse 23. So chapter four, verses one through 22. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. And what was yours, Mary Kay? Courage of the Apostles. Courage of the Apostles. That's great. That's wonderful. I have, so here, Peter and John are before the council, or they're before the crowd, and Peter preaches again, just like he preached in chapter 2, but then 4, 1 through 22, Peter speaks now to the Sanhedrin, to the council. And the council is made up of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And then what happens after that? In verse 23, I have a new title to mine. Verse 23 through um, 31, they pray for boldness. The believer's prayer. That's what I have too. Believer's prayer. Courage. So I have that for 23 through 31. And then what does yours have at 32? Does anybody have 32? Chapter 4, verse 32? Yeah, what do you have, Janet? They share their possessions. Do you remember what we talked about last week about this sharing? This sharing in the early church? What was? There's a big fancy word for it. Yeah, it does begin with a K. You're right. Koinonia. Koinonia. Yeah, again, it's like the name for every single Christian college fellowship that's out there is Koinonia. It's not true. Just some of them are called Koinonia Fellowship. But that's how, where I first learned the word before I knew Greek was 
I would see it on all these college fellowships. So we have koinonia. So here we would say this is koinonia. And then here we have again in Acts 4, 32, and it goes all the way, mine goes all the way to 37. I have more koinonia. And that word koinonia is a word for it's sharing. And remember that it's a word that means this fellowship. Remember when we talk about fellowship, I think of fellowship and I think of our fellowship hall. And one of the things, probably the only thing that um, I love every single thing about our church, every single thing, pretty much. The only thing I wish, and it's impossible, it's impossible, but if we could stop time, I would love to have a half an hour of fellowship on Sunday morning between our services. You know, we're rushing through and we say hi on the way to Bible study and, or on the way to Sunday school. And Sunday school is really important. But fellowship is really important as well. And our fellowship as a church happens at other times during the week. And so that's one of the reasons why we encourage people to come to things like this, to come to small groups, to go to fellowship groups. Remember that our fellowship groups are separated by kind of age and stage. Um, and we have a lot of dinners coming up for those. But in the guilds are another way for us to have fellowship within smaller pockets of our church. And that fellowship might feel superficial at times. It might feel like, well, is this really important? We're just talking about, well, what do you do? How many children do you have? What are you, you know, all of this stuff. But actually, fellowship is really important. It's a horizontal component of sharing together in the life of Christ. We together. So this idea of fellowship has a vertical component. And in the Greek, this idea of koinonia has this vertical component that we each, as we are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we share in God because God has shared himself with us in sending Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for us. He paves the way for us back into relationship with him. And so we share in him. We have a relationship with him. And that vertical component brings us so much joy. But you know what? It's not just that I have a relationship with Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus. It's that we together have a relationship with Jesus. And therefore, there is a bond and a sisterhood between us that we would not otherwise have the best sorority you could possibly imagine. And that is the real meaning of fellowship. Fellowship is not just, hi, how are you doing over coffee? It's we have this bond that goes beyond all of the other bonds that we have in this life, closer even than the friends that I grew up with, closer even than my sisters, because there's this bond in Jesus Christ with each other. And it's that deep bond, that closeness, that brings real true fellowship between Christians, recognizing that. And so that's why we spend a lot of our time on that vertical component. And we would prioritize that vertical component, and that is really important. But then I always encourage people, come here in the middle of the week and remember. Um, remember and share in that fellowship horizontally. Um, go to a dinner and enjoy having dinner with your brothers and sisters in Christ because there's a bond there um, that is incredibly valuable, that's life-giving, um, that helps us remember that we are not alone, um, but rather we are together in Christ. Okay, so this is a gift from the Holy Spirit, this fellowship 
um, fellowship with God is made possible through Jesus, and then this true sense of fellowship, this true depth of connection, again, because of this shared identity in Christ, is something that the Holy Spirit brings. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. When people from all different walks of life, all different stratas of society, all different nations, as we're going to see in Acts, can come together and be unified, that is a miracle, (laughs) isn't it? That is a miracle brought about by the Holy Spirit. So what we'll see is we're looking at this structure, and the reason why I wanted you to look at this structure was because here I'm going to put a big exclamation mark because the coming of the Holy Spirit, wow, wow, wow. That's a big miracle, isn't it? That's a once and for all miracle. The Holy Spirit is available to all of us as we believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus and you say, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit, I want your Holy Spirit dwelling in me, he says, absolutely. And so you can trust that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, even if, you know, the signs of the Holy Spirit are a transformed life. And I look at my life and I say, well, Lord, it's not as transformed as I would like it to be. And he says, yes, you are a work in progress. I am not finished yet, <laughs> but it has been finished, and it will be finished um, in, in, in spirit and in truth. Um, but the Holy Spirit brings about that transformation in our lives and in our hearts. So when we see those little miracles in our lives, that's, that, those are signs of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So our own personal Pentecost comes at our conversion, but, and it is a miracle, 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 miracle. My markers are not doing what I want them to do. But, so this great big miracle is followed by a sermon and um, what does Peter do? Do you remember the main content of Peter's sermon in Acts 2? This is not a test. If you don't remember, it's not a problem. Because you know I'm going to tell you in a minute. <laughs> right? I will. When I what happened to Jesus? Yeah. He, sing, he starts out his sermon, and he says, isn't this amazing? And they've, remember that they've accused the mockers in the crowd. Some people are amazed that all of these disciples are speaking in their native language. And then um, some detractors start mocking them and say, well, this is no miracle. They're just drunk. And what does Peter do? The first thing he says when he gets up and speaks to them, he says, no, 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 no. They are not drunk. And he redirects their gaze. This is not some, let's not try to figure this out. Let's not try to critique it or discuss it. He is pointing away from the miracle, and he is pointing to Jesus. And he interprets the miracle in light of Jesus, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, in light of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming king that all the prophets talked about, the one that they had been waiting for forever and ever and ever and ever. Finally, he's here. And yes, he died and was crucified. The crucifixion was a huge stumbling block because it was seen by the Jewish people as being a curse, God's curse upon someone. But remember that Jesus took the curse of sin and death that is ours to bear upon himself. He lifted that burden off of our own shoulders and took it on his own shoulders when he bore the cross to Calvary. So there is this, um, he is, Peter in his sermon is pointing beyond that and saying, no, no, don't be dismayed. The one that was crucified, yes, even he, he is the Messiah because not only was he crucified, but God rose him from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And then what else does he go on to say after he talks about Jesus' resurrection? 
but there are miracles in his name. That yeah. His name itself is the reason that it, I mean, it's yeah. even his name itself yes. can bring about miracles. You're exactly right, Trudy. His name, the name of Jesus, is so powerful. And we're going to hear Peter talking about this again in the sermon we look at today. Jesus' name is so powerful that miracles happen in his name. And remember that Jesus' name, Jesus' name, Yeshua, means God saves, right, in the Hebrew language. God, and names are so important for the Jewish people. As I told you what my name means in Hebrew, my name means industrious. Literally means bee. Busy. <laughs> yeah, busy bee. And there's that um, that importance to the name in the Hebrew language. And that, remember that for exa- a great example is Jacob and Esau. Remember that Jacob is a striver and a struggler. He comes out of his mother's womb grasping the heel of his brother. And that idea of striving and struggling is within his two names, within the name of Jacob, and then the name that God gives him, Israel. Names are very important. So the name of Jesus is very important, that this little baby, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of little babies named Jesus in the first century. It's a popular name, but there's significance in the fact that Jesus is um, named Jesus, which means God saves. God saves. And so when um, the power that comes through the name of Jesus is not some kind of magical power, but it's as though when we call upon the name of Jesus, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are using theological shorthand to, to um, say that all of what Jesus, God has done in Jesus is for us. We're placing all of that between us and anything um, that would hurt us or harm us or plague us. We say, no, I've been bought, I've been redeemed. Um, just like Martin Luther threw that ink pot at the devil. He said, I am baptized. When we pray in Jesus' name, when we claim Jesus' name over us, we're, it's essentially we're saying, I am baptized. I am bought with his blood. I belong to him. Nothing can happen to me in Jesus' name. And sometimes things do happen to us in this life, but that's looking at the end of the story. At the end, I know that my Redeemer lives, as Job says, and I will be with my Lord face to face eternally. So nothing can harm me, or when things do harm me in this life, it's not the end of the story. That makes sense, and so it's, their power is in the name of Jesus because of who Jesus is and what He has done. It's a it's a shorthand for all of that. So in this sermon, Peter is pointing to Jesus, and then what happens after his sermon in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two through forty-seven? What does Luke want us to know? What is he telling us about? Remember, he tells us about boldness and fellowship. Part of the coming of the Holy Spirit involves these miracles that are actually also signs pointing to Jesus. And then also, as a result of this preaching and the sermon, many believe. And there is a miraculous unity in the church. Um, Getting two people to agree on anything is practically impossible, it feels like, right? Here are all these many, many, many people unified in purpose, unified in their worship of Jesus Christ. 
And what we're going to see, the reason I had us break down the structure is because there's beauty in the structure. Remember that Luke said to Theophilus at the beginning of Luke, his first volume, he says, I sat down to write an orderly account for you. There's beauty in the order. There's beauty in the order of God's design of what he is doing in his church. And um, Luke is showing this in the way that he's structuring these first few chapters of the book of Acts. So we see this same pattern is repeated. The coming of the Holy Spirit was a miracle, a sign actually that pointed to Jesus. And then there's boldness as a result. Then here we're going to have, we already saw last week, the healing of this blind beggar miraculous this miracle that was done in public is going to point to who Jesus is and today we're going to read the first of Peter's speeches this first speech is more like a he's preaching all the time they're both sermons but the first one is to preach for repentance on the part of the crowd the second one is to defend their actions um, in healing this man before the religious leaders of Israel so we're going to look at that next week in chapter 4 and then what happens after that, though, is that there's so much boldness and fellowship within the church. There is courage and sharing beyond human ability that they see made manifest as a result of the, as the, result of the miracles and a re, as a result of this pointing to Jesus Christ in whom um, anyone who calls on his name will be saved. Okay, so we're going to look in, we're going to now look at our actual passage for today with a half an hour left, and then I'll go through that. Yeah, Mary Kay. I just think it's Please. important that we realize that all the people were in awe. Yes, and that's a word that's repeated throughout chapters 2 and 3. Tell us about that. And just praising God, and I mean, they were, you know, they were overwhelmed with the miracle, but it was what was inside them that was coming out. Yeah. And that, that, that as they're witnessing these miracles and seeing these miracles, they're moved by them. And their Holy Spirit moves them to a place of faith. Um, some are mocking, and that's one of the themes that you see throughout Acts, is that there's a division. When the gospel is heard, there's a division. Some doubt and some believe. And so again, in that I always pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, transform those doubting parts within me into faithful parts, parts that believe in you. But you're right that that awe is so incredible. They are so amazed. And I hope that you've experienced that in your life. I certainly have in mind where you just think, wow, God, I am so amazed at what you've done in a situation. I'm so amazed at what you've done throughout human history, which I read about in Scripture. And I see that... You are alive and at work in my life and in the lives of those around me and in the life of your church. That awe and amazement um, produces spiritual fruit in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Any other questions? You have Lenora. Uh, this is moving back. Sure. What is would be the relevance of, quote, I have called you by name? I have called you by name. That's, uh, tell us where that is. You are mine. Yeah, and I'm trying to, off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to remember the scripture reference or the context, but it does come from the Old Testament, and there's a song, there's a renewal song. I think it is. I think you're right, Kay. Because it's a banner in our church. Oh. Yeah. They bring down the aisle when the baby is on the baby's background, and it's 
says, I've called you by name and you are not. Yeah. And I'm I think it's quite a simple question. Yeah. Yeah, there is a sense of intimacy in that, right? That the Lord knows our specific name. He is Lord over is. all. Oh, go, it's Susan. Isaiah, um, Great. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Did you hear that, Lenora? So the Lord there is talking to his people, right? He's calling his people his own, calling them by name. It's a sense of intimacy, relationship, and belonging. We belong together. I know your name. That, and that's one of the reasons why the Lord gives his name to Moses. Remember that um, he tells him his name so that the people will know who has sent Moses to them to deliver them from the hand of, you know, deliver them out of Egypt and slavery in Egypt. So that's, you see that first our God is a personal God. He is sovereign and Lord over all, but he also desires to um, be in relationship with us. So there's that nearness of his presence. He's really involved in us. He knows everything about us. And that can be a scary thing. And it's meant to be a, it's meant to be a scary thing on one level. Oh my goodness, you know everything about me. You know not only my name, but you know the thoughts of my heart. Whoa. But also, uh, uh, there, is, there is something sweet in that for us. As we're in Jesus, he knows our name. He knows all the thoughts of our hearts. And he loves us. Still. He has died for us. Still. He loves us still. He has chosen us. Nothing can take us out of his hand. That's grace. That's grace right there. You're absolutely right. Thank you, Lenore. Um, Let's look at our passage for today. So much richness, so much fullness. Before we even begin to read our our passage for today, it's a little less um, long than some of the other ones. We're going to look at verses 11 through 26 of chapter 3. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then feel free to chime in and pick up a couple of verses and then let someone else read. While he, and this is the blind beggar who's been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. He denied the Holy One and asked for a miracle to bring him to And he killed the altar of life, and God raised in the dead. It is for your witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, appointed for you, Jesus, the 
Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. For Moses truly said to the, to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it, and it shall be that ever that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced to these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of my of the earth shall be. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Great. Any thoughts or any things you notice while you're looking at that? Any similarities between you know what, his what first sermon and this sermon? This yeah, okay. How, how Peter quoted Moses and, I mean, it's obvious that they were well trained in the Old Testament. They knew their Bible. Well, it's also the Holy Spirit. They're, 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 they're described as uneducated men, but yet every... Um, Every Jewish boy was given some measure of training in the Torah, some measure of education. But I would say this is, we marvel at his biblical knowledge and the way he can quote, this is the Holy Spirit. You know, in in John, um, Jesus says to the disciples, I will give you the spirit of truth and he will lead you into all the truth about me, about Jesus. And so this is a great example of the Holy Spirit leading Peter into all truth about Jesus and using an understanding scripture in light of Jesus. So um, one of the things that's really, one of my favorite things to do is to look at how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. The New Testament authors, they know their Bibles so well, and they're looking at all of the Bible. If you look at your Bible, how much of it is made up of the New Testament? And if I just, you know, held up my Bible, I've got, well, I've got a lot of placeholders here, but you can see this is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is so much longer. Lots of ink spilled in the Old Testament, and yet... Um, the point of the apostles is that all of the Old Testament bears witness to Jesus Christ, to who he is and what he's done. So let's look at what Peter, what Peter is saying and the content of his sermon. We're going to hear so many more sermons in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a combination of miracles and sermons. And then what happened next? What happened in the life of the early church? How did God do miracles that other people saw and that brought them to faith in him? How, is, how are the apostles explaining it in light of the Old Testament? And then what happens in the midst of those first disciples? So these three themes are all throughout the book of Acts. But looking here at this particular sermon, how, he starts it off in verse 12. And remember how with his sermon in chapter 2, he said, these men are not drunk. Guess what? This is about Jesus. Well, here in chapter 3, he's saying, this is not about us. This is not about me and John and what God just did through us. It's about God and specifically about Jesus Christ. 
So um, Peter first is trying to um, get their gaze away from him, just like he was trying to get the crowd's gaze away from the disciples speaking in tongues and point them to the one who has caused them to do this, to um, the one to whom all the glory is due. So he starts out by saying, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of the patriarchs. He is talking about Yahweh, the one who revealed himself of ages ago to Moses in the burning bush. And um, I put on your sheet Exodus 3, 6, and 15. It's this, you don't need to turn to it because we don't have time for that right now, but you can go look at it later. But there, trust me, what um, Peter is quoting this construction, this almost liturgical phrasing, God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's saying that same God who brought us out of Egypt who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and who revealed himself beforehand to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. That same God is at work here in our midst. And he then goes on to, to um, contrast how God the Father, God of our fathers, God of the patriarchs, the God that the Jews have been worshiping for centuries, how that God raised Jesus from the dead, how he gave Jesus all honor in exalting him to his right hand, and he's contrasting God's treatment of Jesus with the crowd's treatment of Jesus. Remember that this is not quite the same exact crowd that was there at Passover when Jesus was crucified. It might not be the exact same number of people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, but it's the same year, certainly the same year. There is a lot of overlap between these two crowds there were very likely some people in the crowd that Peter is addressing, and the content of his sermon would suggest that there are, who had been there, who had shouted, crucify him. And he's saying, you delivered Jesus over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. This sobering accusation this sobering judgment, he is seeking to cause the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. And he's contrasting how Jesus was treated um, by humans with how God has treated him. Jesus is now glorified. Jesus is the suffering servant. This is, he is directly quoting and alluding to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Um, I'm just going to read this to you. Let me know if it sounds familiar. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is the passage that is about Jesus in his suffering, and the early church understood this passage to be fulfilled in Jesus, like a lamb before its shears is silent, um, so he opened not his mouth. But the beginning of this passage um, goes back to this um, future look at the suffering servant. Um, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Through Isaiah, God is prophesying not only about Jesus' suffering at the cross, 
but also about what God would do to vindicate him, that he would raise him from the dead and exalt him to the highest place at his own right hand. That is exactly what Peter is pointing to. He is echoing that prophecy right there, and he's saying, that has been fulfilled in your midst. Um, So again, he's saying, this Jesus whom you killed, he, it is in his name that life is imparted to this man, this man who was born crippled. There is power in the name of Jesus. God honors Jesus even though um, human beings do not. Okay, pause right there. Yes. Yes, it's on your sheet right there. It's uh, 50, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Yes, that's it. Any other questions about that? I know it's, it's intense, and we're going to look at that again um, because there's this idea of repentance and turning is an idea that goes back to the very first commandment. Does anybody remember what the very first commandment is? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. No, that's how Jesus is quoting and summing up the commandments. The very first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That first commandment is about idolatry, about worshiping God alone and putting him first above all else. And one of the things that's true for us today is we don't have the specific metal gods that we would go to and worship and bow down to the way those early ancient Israelites had. They had literally metal gods or clay gods that they would burn incense to, that they would offer sacrifices to. And um, God was calling them away from that kind of polytheistic worship to worship him alone. We today, we don't have that. I don't have, there's no way that would even be in our mindset. But if, you ever have, if, you, if you've ever visited India, like I have, they have that. Out in the countryside, there are these little temples <laughs> to random little gods. And it is, it's scary to be in that situation and think, that, well, they're not real. Um, but one of the things that we are in danger of as Westerners is that we often are in danger of putting um, things in the place of God, putting our trust in that um, something else other than God, whether it is our own financial resources, the resources that God has given us, whether through we've inherited to them or we've earned them through a wonderful job. or um, So financial resources often can become for us a crutch, something we lean back on, but that, um, but that cannot save us. It could be gone in a moment. The same is true with our health. We might think, oh, I'm doing just fine. I look great, feel good. Um, but that could be gone in a moment as well. We might think about um, earthly love. Um, even good things like our spouses. We could easily rely on our spouses for every single thing and, and it would keep us from relying on God for all the things that we need physically, materially, emotionally, spiritually. And that can be a dangerous place to get ourselves into. There are, what other things is it tempting to, to put first? I think also children. They're so wonderful, and we spend so much time thinking about our children. We spent or continue to spend so much time working for them. How many, I mean, mothering involves countless hours it's a lifestyle, not just a job. And so as a lifestyle, it can become all-consuming. Our children could be first in our lives. 
rather than God being first in our lives. What else is there? A job. job, yeah. And even when the job is a calling, I love my job so much, but I don't even think the word job is like, I don't think that works. Because <laughs> I think of jobs as beginning and ending, and I delight in the fact that my job is never. never. I love it. I'd be so bored otherwise. It's so much fun. It's such an honor to get to do it. But it could be first. I could, in my sin, put it first above um, the one who called me to it and empowers me to do it. Yeah. What else? Your dog. Your dog, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't. I personally don't have a dog, but if I had a dog, it would be number one. They're so wonderful. They're so unconditional. They give and give and give, and you just have to feed them. Yeah, They're, you get that unconditional affection from a pet. Well, all of these things. At when Peter puts this um, juxtaposition, he is highlighting: you chose Barabbas over Jesus. When we choose in our sin our jobs, our spouses, our children, our financial security, our health, um, something about our identity that we're just grateful for and we love. Well, I'm, I'm smart, or I like to do this, or I make the most beautiful flowers grow, or whatever it might be. Whenever we exalt that to that place of the utmost importance in our life, we're choosing Barabbas over Jesus in our sinfulness. And so the sin of the first crowd is our sin as well choosing anything but God, choosing anything but God's way in Jesus Christ over him. And so the words that Peter has for those first people in the first crowd are words for us as well. He's talking about, you. he's saying, you chose this, but it's okay because there is hope for you. And here's how the hope comes into play. The hope comes into play in verse 18. And I'm going to pause here and just do a little aside We're going to look at these promises fulfilled and the hope that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. But also look at these passages, the prophets that bear witness, because Peter is justifying everything he says. He's justifying his argument in his sermon by pointing back to Moses, pointing back to Samuel, and pointing back to Abraham in the Old Testament. First to Moses, saying Moses said there would be a prophet that would come after him, and that's in Deuteronomy 18. And he's saying... This Jesus is that prophet that Moses prophesied about, and you should listen to him. He's the greater prophet, greater even than Moses. But he's more than a prophet. He's also citing Samuel without quoting him directly and pointing to the fact that Jesus is great David's greater son. He is the Messiah that they had hoped for, and he is king not just over some kind of geopolitical territory. He is king and lord over all the earth for all time. He is pointing to Jesus' kingship and his lordship overall. And then finally we're getting foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on in Acts. He's pointing to Abraham and saying this Jesus is Abraham's offspring, the promised offspring to Abraham who was barren, who had no children. God promised that um, Abraham's offspring would then be a blessing to all the nations. In Jesus, all the nations are blessed because there is a new covenant that God makes with all those who believe in Jesus so that the promises of God to the ancient people of Israel are now, those um, promises are fulfilled for all people as we put our trust in Jesus. So there is a new covenant people now of all nations. 
and there's a little bit of a hint towards what that will look like in the future as people of other nations besides just Israel start to come and believe in Jesus. So that, those are the three prophetic traditions that Peter is citing. But the promises, now I'm going back up again. Sorry, my outline is out of order. Now I'm going back up to God's promises fulfilled. What are the three things that Peter is saying are fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, again, he's saying, you chose someone else, not not Jesus. But in verse 19, he says, repent, therefore. It's possible to repent and turn again, turn away from worshiping false idols, false gods, other things and people in your life, and turn to Jesus. And as we turn, that turning is by the power of the Holy Spirit. God delights to pivot us. Sometimes he pivots us by taking away the things that we put our trust in. And that's a very hard thing. When something that you've enjoyed is suddenly no longer there. When you lose money or you lose your health or you lose a loved one, that has been so meaningful, um, whose life has um, poured into your own life. It is such a hard thing then to regroup and say, what now? Well, what now means now there's more time for Jesus, Um, more ways that God can be present in our lives, more ways that he delights for us to rely on him. So there's that turning, that repentance from putting other things before Jesus, And this repenting involves the blotting out of our sins. I am still sitting with that image that Andrew used in his sermon a couple weeks ago about the grape juice on the oriental rug. Because so often we talk about forgiveness of sins and we think about forgiveness in a human perspective. How many of us have had um, a fallout with a friend and the friend said, you know, I forgive you, but you knew that they were still holding it over your head. I forgive you, but you knew you were still in the doghouse. I forgive you, but you really had to make it up to her. That is a human version of forgiveness. God's version of forgiveness is that it is completely wiped out, completely obliterated from his memory, eternal amnesia. Because of Jesus Christ, our sins are completely exonerated, completely blotted out, completely wiped out. And if you think of that in terms of an emptying, if we are vessels prepared for the indwelling spirit of God, that's like this cleaning out, like hydrogen peroxide cleaning out a wound from any dirt or gunk that's gotten in there, any infection, it's cleaned out. We are cleaned out through our repentance, through God's um, through God's cleansing forgiveness. We're cleaned out. We're not just empty, but then we're filled. So that's the second promise. First of all, our sins would be obliterated. Second, following this emptying of repentance, this turning, um, there's a filling. And God promises that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all who believe in Jesus. This is our inheritance as followers of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit here is represented by verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is the Holy Spirit but the very presence of God in our midst, dwelling within us as we read Scripture? Do you ever get that sense of, whew, that was so good. I just read that and God used that and I feel blessed by it. That's the Holy Spirit right there, um, empowering us, delighting in us, um, showing us spiritual treasures through the written word of God. Times of refreshing, times of rest. This rest is a rest from our own works and a rejoicing in God's work in us. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is our inheritance as followers of Jesus. And then um, this is also our inheritance, is that at the last day when Jesus returns, we will be totally remade 
completely remade and renewed. All heaven and, heaven and earth will be joined, and we see at the end of Revelation that the new Jerusalem descends down to earth so that God's very presence, the holy of holies that exists in heaven, and uh, will descend to earth, and there, um, there will be that new Jerusalem. All those who believe in Jesus will be gathered into the city of God, and we will dwell with him eternally, face to face. We can be face-to-face with God, the Almighty, and Holy One because of Jesus, because of his atoning work. So this return, Jesus will return. We have hope that the darkness and suffering that we see in this world is temporary and that Jesus' return, upon his return, every, all the sorrow and sighing and illness and dying will be gone and every tear will be wiped away. And that is the fulfillment, the full, de- you know, the Holy Spirit is a deposit of our inheritance. This is the full inheritance, finally come at last. And so as we live through this life, we know that um, these three things, the repentance and refreshment are ongoing and continual. We confess our sins every Sunday morning, whether it's morning prayer or Holy Communion, and then we receive refreshment through worshiping. We receive that spirit of God as we are together as the body of Christ. It's a continual, weekly, daily occurrence. And God delights to do that for us. And we look forward in hope to the last day when all will be made new. Um, So this is all ours in Jesus. Even as we turn from the things that would take us from Jesus, the things we would trust in instead of Jesus, God delights to give us Jesus himself. And all of the blessings and all of the promises um, are ours through faith in him. Okay, so let's pray, and you can hang back and ask me a question if you like. So, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for all that is ours in you. Thank you, Lord, for the way you revealed yourself so mightily to those um, first apostles. Even as you were seated at the right hand of the Father, you brought your Holy Spirit, you brought miracles and signs and tongues, and then you gave them wisdom beyond their own strength to understand you in light of all that had gone on before. And so, Lord, um, give us new clarity even today to understand um, you in light of all that's gone on before, not just in salvation history, but in our own personal history. Give us eyes to see as we look back over our lives how you have been guiding us and leading us every step of the way um, to this point of belief and faith in you and give us strength and courage by the power of your holy spirit to turn from the things that would distract us from you give us eyes and ears for you alone and then transform us into your likeness thank you lord thank you for your times of refreshment and i ask that as you send us out from here um, would you send us with your holy spirit with the very presence of god so that we might be at rest as we go about the rest of our days and our week and we ask this in your name lord jesus christ amen Thank mm-hmm. you.